let's ask the Lord's guidance as we look at emotions and God. Lord, we thank you for what we're going to learn from you today. We thank you that you created us as an image and there are some aspects of us which really are, are due to your parentage. And we might mess them up, but there's something good in there. So teach us, we pray, what we need to know this day. Amen. Now, I think most people know what baby boomers are. They're people who are born around about my age. And uh, I was interested. We have a fellowship of twins. So, and, and they're about the same age too, actually. So that's interesting, just hearing your story there. <laughs> Uh, so baby boomers, emotion, didn't pay much attention to it at all. My mum wrote down some handwritten stuff, a little bit of stuff about her life which I was reading the other day and she had a recollection of when her mum passed away, my grandmother, and that was interestingly over in Ben Cubbon way, uh, and uh, her brother cried at the funeral. I would say that's normal, but the older sister looking on goes, stop that, don't cry. Different attitude to emotional expression. They paid little attention to what's going on. In fact, one of the things that people often said of people in that, that age, in that stage, is uh, she was a very private person. Yeah? You've heard that before, haven't you? Well, hasn't the pendulum swung? Nowadays, what's the big cry? You hurt my feelings. And that's considered a valid thing. And we have emotional intelligence. It's recognised as a skill area. And advertising, we know, has been bypassing our logic for a long time and appealing just to our emotions. Even the news. You go to the, a the ABC to listen to the news and... It's different these days. It's just whatever will give you an emotional bang is what they give you, an emotional soundbite. And so emotion has become a big deal. And that, of course, is a question for us as Christians. What do we do about it? How do we understand it? How do we manage? How do we view our emotions? So, as I mentioned earlier, we're made in the image of God. So perhaps we should look first at some of the emotions that God displays in the Bible. And perhaps we can ask, is God emotional? Well, let's look at some things. The first one, Psalm 37, we see God laughs. God laughs. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth, and the Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day coming. And so God laughs at the wicked. That same enemy that fills our hearts with dread makes the Lord laugh it off. Laughs it off. He's not intimidated. He's not moved by the enemy. He sees the enemy from a long way off. He knows what the end of that way of things is going to be. And the Lord can laugh because he knows those plans are not going to succeed. And if you think about it, that means for us, we can also laugh at our enemies. Knowing but the Lord knows what their end will be. You go and live your life that way, we laugh at where you're going, in a good sense. What else? 
God mourns. Jesus wept. And mourning is a natural emotion. When Jesus received word that his friend Lazarus had died, even though he knew he was going to call him back to life, he still cried, he still wept. And so I suppose that means for us, nothing wrong with us, crying, mourning, grieving, the death of a loved one, even someone we don't know that well, but it's a tragic story, could move us to tears, that's fine. Jesus said, shed tears for Lazarus. This is an interesting one. God hates. What does he hate? There are six things he hates. Well, the seven things which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that's devising wicked plans, feet that are running rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. And it sort of seems strange to say God hates, doesn't it? Yet the Bible declared that there are things there that he hates. And God hates the things that he knows are detrimental to the body of Christ. He knows what fruit will come from those things, and he wants us to keep as far away as possible from them. So when you and I hate, we need to hate the same things that God hates. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, false witness that utters lies, and one who spreads strife amongst brothers. We need to hate the same things God hates, don't we? And then we must also avoid hating because somebody did something to us or someone that we love because hateful feelings for us are often tied to revenge. Well, what does God teach us about that? Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So hate the right things. Don't hate others. Go back to that list at some stage and look it up. But more positive we're happy with this one God loves God so loved the world that's you that's me that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life because God loves you he loves me he loves unbelievers God loves the entire world and everything that God has done and is doing is because he loves he loves people and he wants to spend eternity with them. And love, in some senses, is our greatest emotion and it compels us to do beautiful things for others. Do you love God? The test is, do you love, love other people? And even greater test, can you love even your enemies? Matthew 5, verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We should never run low on our supply of love. We should shower everyone with love because when we do so, we're sharing God on, God on them because God is love after all. And 1 John 4, 8, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And I'll leave that discussion of how much love is an emotional thing and how much it's an action thing. I'll leave that for another day. Let's look then at the Lord being happy. Lord rejoicing 
Psalm 104, verse 31. The glory of the Lord shall endure forever. The Lord shall rejoice in his works. He's happy. He's happy about what he's done. And you and I are his works. God rejoices in us. He's happy about it. The miracles he performs are his works. He rejoices over his creation. He rejoices over his people. He rejoices when we obey. He rejoices when someone accepts Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. And we should be in the same vein rejoicing too in God. We should rejoice in his truth and the grace that we receive every day. The mercy where he doesn't look at our bad stuff if we confess it to him. We should rejoice in the favour we enjoy the righteousness that we are able to move into and the faithfulness we're able to learn and grow into. We should rejoice in all the works of God we see around about us in creation and in one another, even those we don't understand, because this is where we should be, rejoicing in the Lord. Psalm of Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. And just for repetition, again I'll say rejoice so God can also feel pleased we see that in 1 Kings 3.10 and the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing and that's where Solomon is given God says I'll give you anything and he says give me wisdom and what did God feel about that he was pleased he was pleased when Solomon asked for wisdom to discern between good and evil in order to be a good judge of the people and he was so pleased in fact that he granted the petition and also added riches and honor and so feeling pleased that's a natural emotion one which we received really from God it's good to be pleased and it's good to desire to please him and be pleased with him but if he's got if he can be pleased God can be displeased Numbers 11 verse 1 and when the people complained it displeased the Lord and the Lord heard it and his anger was kindled and this is not good for them and the fire of the Lord burnt among them and he consumed them that were in the other parts, uttermost parts of the camp so just as the Lord can be pleased he can be displeased as well complaining yeah displeases the Lord because it shows a lack of faith shows a lack of trust in him and he also dislikes complaining because it spreads it affects others doesn't it hang around with grumble guts after a while you sound like grumble guts what displeases you same things that displease God they should be the things that displease you now that's a challenge isn't it we should desire to trust God and have faith in him and we should also dislike complaining. And closely related to that is anger. God feels anger. Exodus 4 and also in Numbers. And the anger of the Lord burned against Moses and he said, well, because he wanted him to do a job and he said, oh, I can't do it. Well, the anger burned against Moses and he said, is that not your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently because Moses didn't think he spoke very well in public 
And moreover, because Holy is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. And so God simply gets angry. The Old Testament's full of scriptures to show God displaying that emotion. However, God doesn't get angry for shallow and unimportant matters. Things that God is angry about? Sin. Disobedience. Injustice. When we experience anger, when we get angry, it's often because we didn't get our way or because something unfair happened. And that's the anger we don't want. James chapter 1 verse 20 teaches, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And although it's natural for us to be angry, we need to be careful. Because anger can cause us to sin and it can cause us to displease God. So once again, we needed to consider what God gets angry about as a guide to what we should get angry about. That's what God gets angry about. That's the things that are worth getting angry about. Now, God also is jealous. Exodus 34:14. You shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And when we think of jealous, it's about... Uh, we think about a jealous spouse or a jealous friend and some spouses get jealous if their husband or their wife shows an interest in another person. Or your best friend gets interested in another friend and you get jealous when outsiders seem to threaten the closeness you have. And so it's about exclusivity, about not sharing a relationship. Now God doesn't feel threatened by our attention to other sources when we go off and trust false gods. He doesn't get threatened by that, but he's jealous because he knows that where that is going to go, where going after false gods is going to go, is not good. And he wants us to be consecrated to him so that we aren't hurt or deceived by looking in the wrong places, following the wrong things. So his jealousy for a close relationship with us is really, really good. God is jealous. God feels compassion. Matthew 14, Jesus went forth, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion towards them and he healed their sick. Well, most of us feel some pity for the less fortunate, but how many of us feel then to take the next step? compelled to alleviate the suffering how many of us feel a compassion because of the pity we feel for others and we see multiple verses in the Bible where Jesus was moved with his compassion when he saw the plight of others he didn't say oh gee I'm really sorry for you he went the next step and he acted on it and that's a challenge for us isn't it to act with compassion that we feel for others whether it's buying groceries for the less fortunate or visiting the sick and the people who can't get out or praying for someone who needs prayer, we need to not just feel pity but move into compassion and act upon what we feel because James reminds us that faith without works is not worth much. It's dead. And, and if you look at the big picture of Jesus' compassion, and from 2 Peter 3 verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you because 
This is compassion. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance, to change their minds and turn back to him because he doesn't want us separated from him forever. He's patiently waiting out of his compassion for us to receive the gospel and the redemption of sin purchased by Jesus. And that whole heart of compassion is reflected in one of his titles, the Good Shepherd. A shepherd is a compassionate person. There's tenderness. Matthew 10:25. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? I think you get even less for pink and grays. Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. Not one pink and grey galah. character of God consistently displays tenderness through his care for the sick and the hurting the young and the weak kids, what's he think about them, what's his compassion there, Matthew 19, 14 Jesus said, let the little children come to me don't hinder them the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these so there's a whole pile of emotional things that show us that God has emotions he has feelings he laughs, he mourns, he hates, he loves, he rejoices, he's pleased, he's displeased, feels angry, feels jealous, compassionate and tender. And so he understands our tears, he understands our smiles, he understands when we get upset and angry. And because he does, we can rest assured that he understands when we become emotional about stuff. We need to, what do we do with those emotions there? need to be aware of them. And then we need to manage them. Ephesians 4.26 says, in your anger. What's that saying? You get angry. You do. But in your anger, what? Do not sin. And then, it's a time period for that to get over it. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. So we do get angry. But what we're saying is you've got to get past that knee-jerk instant reaction and process what went on. Get over the anger before the sun goes down here. So don't hold on to grievances. Don't lash out in the heat of anger. And instead go to God with it in prayer. Lay out your feelings and emotions at his feet. Well, if you don't know how to do that, read the Psalms. That's what they do there. They lower out their emotions at their feet and know that he cares for you and he cares about your feelings. Yes, God has a wide range of emotions. And one of the things I've come to understand over the years is that there are four main ways that we as a group of people react to our emotional world. So there's one group of people say, oh, see, God's emotional, so we need to be passionate in all arenas of life. Don't be stuffy. Let it all out. Otherwise, you're just cold, dead meat. Let us feel your empathy. Let us feel your benevolence. Let's feel your authentic emotional connection. So that's one portion of us to feel that way about emotions. Another portion of us are inclined to say, well, look, I'm always positive, I'm always upbeat. It's not really about the emotions so much as it's about being bold for Jesus, 
working skillfully and gracefully in exciting evangelistic events. I'm adapting on the fly. I'm making things happen. Let's just get moving. Don't worry about those emotions. And then there's another group. And uh, maybe I heard a lot of these in churches I was going up, growing up in I say, emotions. They're all over the place. What I'm interested in is a reliable and a consistent church where we do everything in a respectable and an orderly manner. Or maybe other people, and there's another group of people who say, this looks not about emotions. Emotions, you see, are just ideas expressed. Uh, it's about how you think. You've got to think better. You've got to use your willpower and your strength of your mind. And so you're not going to be swayed by the emotions you feel at the moment and you just process things logically, impartially, and then we'll get a church where everything is sensible and intelligent and it's well-balanced and well-run. You might find yourself in one of those four scenarios going, yeah, that's, that's right, no, that's, no um, that's wrong. Whatever camp you're in, it affects things deeply. It affects how you read the Bible. It affects how you operate in church. And I believe it's very important to think about and work through how you respond to your emotions. To admit what you have and then to understand that the way you see it is not the way everybody sees it. Oh, that's... That's pretty hard to understand, actually, because we naturally uh, interpret things from our viewpoint. We need to, as we grow, understand, oh, well, how do you really see it? Let me listen, because maybe I can learn something different from your viewpoint. Well, I'm going to address just one question about emotions this morning, and that is, can I trust the inner feelings and impressions which my emotions give me? And it's a very important question because emotions are very active critters, aren't they? They're often instantaneous, they're vivid, they're real, and because of that vividness and realness, they can claim to be reality. However, they must never be unreservedly considered be reality. Even though they claim to be real, they can never be considered unreservedly to be real. I spent some time with a young man in Kalgoorlie who believed himself to be strongly prophetic and he brought me many impressions from his uh, of emotional world of what God had told him and he believed God had shown him many things and I was talking about it him, well he came up in discussion with one of his mates and the mate said you know None of those things have ever happened, or very few. And I wonder now, years later, whether that young prophet ever evaluated what his emotions claimed to be real and put it up against what actually happened, was actually real. Did he ever keep track of whether what he felt so vividly and so strongly actually came about? You see, the fact of the matter is, emotions can lie you. Well, this, is, this might be a bit of a shallow example, but you know, 
kid's getting ready to leave the house. Mum says, be careful about this, be careful about that, and runs through a whole list of things that she's afraid may happen and never do. Take another arena, performance anxiety. People get afraid of what they think other people are thinking about them, so they're afraid of an imaginary reality because how can they really know what's going on in someone's head? They can't read minds. And there are many examples of how people have thought God told them something. So they sold houses, they left relationships, they launched out on an enterprise based solely on a very vivid emotional experience and then it all fell apart. For example, God told me to marry this person. They never spent enough time developing a relationship to see if they actually got on. And so because emotions can lie to us, we need to have ways of testing them. And particularly we need to test how our emotions are affecting our attempts to follow God, to prove the will of God, how they are affecting our capacity to follow what God wants us to do. In 1892, just before Jeff was born, Martin Wells Knapp, in a little booklet called Impressions, said something very helpful. He said, one of the objectives, objectives of Satan is to get the Christian to lean totally on his impressions, accepting them uncritically as the absolute voice of God. And when this occurs, the devil has got all he wants. Interesting. And he gave four ways of evaluating impressions. He said, one, is it scriptural? And he's not talking about, oh, I found the Bible verse that said, you shall be able to such and such. No, does the whole sense of the Bible confirm the truth of this impression? Number one, is it scriptural? Number two, is it right in the sense, is it good? Is this an honourable thing? Is it sensible? Is it good, not just for me, but for all parties? Concerned, Is it right? And there's another one. Is it providential? So in other words, has God confirmed a major leading in a few different arenas? Do the circumstances to do this, have they actually opened up? Is the providence of God in there? Concrete things happen to support this. And four, is it reasonable? Does... God confirmed, sorry, is it reasonable? The Apostle Paul referred to the Christian life as a reasonable service. So the will of God can be expected to be in harmony with spiritually enlightened just judgment. In other words, I'm not going to be asked to do absurd and ridiculous things. Think about that. A test for this is impulsive behaviour. You see, God deals with us as rational beings and he rarely requires us to be impulsive and act now on this sudden suggestion. And if you're ever thinking about buying a house uh, and you've got this strong impression that you have to act right now, beware of that. I don't know why I said that about the house, but anyway, maybe someone's thinking about buying a house today. G.D. <laughs> Watson says, the devil wants you to be in a hurry. And he wants you to rush and go pell-mell and not wait for anything. Whereas Jesus is quiet and is calm 
and he takes his time and what did the psalmist say wait on the Lord so beware of theologies that magnify that spontaneous new thought that you had as the real voice of God in the face of all the planning and thinking and praying you've done up to this point well we've considered many of the emotions of God which are always subservient to the will of God God has them we have them they float around our attentions and they float around our service but they're not the main deal they're a secondary deal and although we respond to the emotional world in uh, some different ways uh, we should pay attention at the end of the day to the fact that emotions have to be held accountable to our reason they have to be accountable to our willpower and they are always less important than the big thing is following God's will for your life that's the big thing you know emotions have a remarkable capacity to generate evidence to support themselves take fear say if you're afraid fear has a way of interpreting sounds in the night to make you feel even more afraid doesn't it and when you're afraid of something you start finding other things which confirm that you need to be afraid of it and ask any conspiracy theorist emotions have a remarkable way of finding evidence to support themselves and in this modern age where people are being encouraged to release your emotions to give them even greater power in ruling your destiny in an age where we're told if it feels good do it just do it it can't be wrong because it feels so right most love songs say it's about being excited about the other person well in contrast to that modern age let's look at something we all know 1 Corinthians 13 love and ask is there any feelings in there love is patience love is kind it doesn't envy it doesn't boast it's not proud it doesn't dishonor others these are rational logical things it's not self-seeking it's not easily angered keeps no record of wrongs doesn't delight in evil but it rejoices in the truth always protects always trusts always hopes always perseveres and so let's not be deluded by this discovery of personhood the pop psychology once which wants you to free up your emotions from restraint and inhibition which wants you to get in touch with your feelings to open up to express them to have a primal scream because although we know we have emotions we need to understand them and we often need to express them but we want to do it appropriately we want to do it appropriately we don't want reason to get dominated by the feelings because there's still a need for self-control and we remind you of the fruit that the spirit produces in us what does he produce in us love and joy and peace forbearance goodness kindness faithfulness gentleness and self-control and say self-expression self-control nothing is more dangerous than to permit our emotions to rule our destinies 
going to finish with a story from Dr. James Dobson's mother. She went to a little Oklahoma high school in 1930, which had a terrible gridiron team, not like the Muckamite. These guys were really bad. And the whole community was depressed and dispirited by the walloping the team regularly experienced, which we, of course, don't know in Mucker, because our team's so good. So finally, finally, a wealthy oil producer decided to throw in some special help. Waltzed into the team locker room after another ignominious defeat, and he offered a brand new Ford car to everyone on the team, and even to every coach, if all they did was they beat their rivals, their bitter rivals, in the next game. Wow, that raised the roof. The team howled, they cheered, they slapped each other on the back, and for seven days they ate and they drank and they breathed footy. And the entire school caught up the, the spirit of ecstasy. There was the dream of new cars and travelling with a girl on your arm in the car. You know. And on the big night, coming up to the game, the excitement in the locker room was fever pitch as they prepared. They raced out triumphantly onto the field. They were really pumped. They played out of their skins and they were demolished 38 to 0. <laughs> the, the hurrah, the exuberance didn't translate to a single point on the scoreboard because emotion couldn't compensate for lack of discipline, for lack of conditioning, for lack of practice, for lack of study, for lack of coaching, for lack of drilling, for lack of experience and lack of character. Emotion has a place, it's a definite place in human affairs, but when it's forced to stand on its own, feelings usually reveal themselves to be unreliable, ephemeral, they come and go, and even a bit foolish. They're a very fickle servant and a disastrous master. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, the main aim is not to express ourselves, to be emotionally present and vibrant. The main aim is to do the will of God, to use the gifts, talents and abilities which you gave us to build your kingdom. Help us never lose sight of that core calling to build your church and where we have the self-control we need to manage our emotions appropriately in the service of the King.